Well, good morning again, church. If you have a copy of God's Word, I'm going to ask you to open up to the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 15. If you do not have a Bible with you this morning, there are some complimentary copies of God's Word in the pew racks in front of you. If you didn't bring a copy of God's Word, we invite you to use one of those today and turn to Luke chapter 15. And that's a gift to you if you need a Bible or if you have someone in your family, in your sphere of influence, maybe you're one uh, that you are praying for and you'd like to give them a copy of God's Word. It's just a pew Bible. There's nothing fancy about it. But if you'd like to give somebody a copy of God's Word, we invite you to take that with you. In your worship guide, as you're turning there, this morning, um, you, there's a, an insert in there I just want to draw your attention to real quickly. Um, how many of you in here think to yourself, you know what, I just wish I knew the Bible a little bit better. I wish, I wish there was an easy way for me to, to learn more about the Bible or learn more about theology or learn more about God's Word. Anybody ever wonder that sometimes? Yeah, I think a lot of us do. Well, I've been privileged to be a part for about four years of a, of a partnership uh, with Samford University called Samford Ministry Training Institute. And don't let the name Ministry Training Institute scare you off because it's not about training ministers. It's about training lay people and those who do feel called possibly into ministry uh, in, in what it means to, to, to be the ministers that God has called us to be. Every person in the church is called to be a minister of Jesus Christ. And part of that involves knowing and understanding God's Word and being able to, to accurately teach it, to accurately understand it, to accurately convey it to others. And so Sanford University has a series of courses that they teach. Each course is about eight weeks in length. Um, the cost for the course is very affordable. It's $50, and it's basically designed to just walk you through how to understand God's Word better. We just finished up a course on the Minor Prophets. We've had a couple of members of our church who uh, were part of that course and were able to participate in it. Our next course is uh, a part one of a two-part uh, series called Biblical Foundations, where we're basically going to be doing an overview of what are the major foundations of the Christian faith. Things such as the doctrine of God, who God is, and what the Bible says about Him, the doctrine of Christ, the person and work of Jesus Christ, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, the doctrine of the Trinity, the doctrine of end times. And so many of those are going to be covered over the course of the next two terms. So the next term starts October 22nd, that's Tuesday night, at the uh, Morgan Baptist Association office in Hartzell. Uh, you can register that night, or there's also registration information available on this insert where you register online if you'd be interested in taking that course. Um, each course requires one textbook. This course will take the same textbook for both the next two terms, so that would be good. And you, you write one paper, and that's what scares everybody off. Oh, I don't know if I can write a paper. Well, you write one little small three- to five-page paper, just basically uh, overviewing some of the things that you learned. And so I would encourage you to prayerfully consider that, especially if you're in a season of life where you have a little bit more flexibility than you did when you were raising children and, and working and all that. And maybe right now you're just saying, you know what, I'm in a season right now where, where I feel like God's called me to start to know His Word better so I can be more effective in sharing His Word with others, talking about the Word in my Sunday school class or my small group or things like that. So I encourage you to take part in that if, uh, if you feel so led. Dr. Chris Martin will be teaching that. Chris is a great guy, and he will be teaching the first part of that. In January, I'll be teaching the second part of that course 
uh, beginning the third week of January. So just look, take that with you, pray over that, and we would love to have you be a part of the Sanford Ministry Training Institute. Well, today we are in Luke chapter 15, and we are talking about who's your one, and we're talking today about how one is the heart of the Father. We are asking every person here at Central Park Baptist Church over the course of the next month to pray, to, to, to seriously pray to the Holy Spirit and to begin to, to look at your relationships for one person in your life who needs to hear the gospel. Now, all of us in here, if we're very honest, would say that there are probably many people in our life who need to hear the gospel. And, and, and dozens of people in our life who probably are not walking with the Lord. And when you feel the weight of that, when you, when you begin to seriously think about how many people that you and I know that, that, that are not currently walking with the Lord, that can be an overwhelming thing sometimes. Where do I start? Well, where you start is you start with one. You pray and ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to you one person in your life who, who does not believe in Christ, who is not currently uh, engaged in church, possibly maybe was in church years ago, but is, has walked away from that and, and no longer is bearing any fruit for Christ. And for God to reveal one person in your life that you can begin to identify, that you can write down on this card that we are giving you and say, this is the person that I feel like the Spirit has led me to. We ask last week for you to, to pray to the Spirit two things. Number one, God, give me a burden for lost people. And number two, give me a boldness to share the gospel. And we said that that is a prayer that the Holy Spirit will answer every time. You don't have to wonder when you pray, God, would you give me a burden for people who don't know Christ? And would you give me a boldness to share the gospel? I can guarantee you that God will answer that prayer. And many times if we don't feel that burden and we don't experience that boldness, it's because we're not praying for God to help us to share the gospel. We've said throughout the course of the last couple of weeks, Jamie did a great job introducing this a couple of weeks ago, that evangelism is the task of every disciple of Jesus Christ. It's not the task of paid professionals in the church. We, we, we had that mentality for many, many years that, preacher, that's what we got you for. We hired you because you're supposed to go out and visit all the lost people and tell them about Jesus. Well, that's not biblical. Evangelism is the task of every disciple of Jesus Christ. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, when God gave the Great Commission, He meant it for you. And so the bottom line is that as followers of Jesus Christ, we are either following the Great Commission of making disciples and sharing the gospel with the lost, or we're being disobedient to our Lord. Evangelism is the task of every disciple of Jesus Christ. Matthew 28 tells all of us to go and make disciples, and Acts 1-8 promises us that we have the power of the Holy Spirit upon us, and because we have the power of the Holy Spirit, we are to be witnesses of Christ from the neighborhoods that God has planted us to the ends of the earth. And so all throughout our convention of churches, in these, in these months, there are many churches that are coming together, and believers are being challenged to take up to step up and take responsibility for taking the Gospels to our communities one person at a time and one Gospel conversation at a time. Johnny Hunt, the former pastor of First Baptist Church Woodstock, is now the vice president 
for evangelism at the North American Mission Board, and he's the champion of this cause within our convention. And Johnny Hunt recently said, I saw it tweeted, God forbid that anyone meet Jesus without taking someone with you. God forbid that any one of us would meet Jesus, that we would eventually meet our Lord and Savior in heaven and not have brought one person along with us. Our SBC president, J.D. Greer, recently said, Jesus finished the purchase of our salvation, paying the full price for our sin on the cross and shattering the powers of death and the resurrection. But the mission of salvation is not yet complete because the church is the vehicle for the completion of this mission. Perhaps no passage of Scripture more adequately displays the passionate heart of God for the lost more than Luke chapter 15. Now many of us in here are familiar with the parable of the prodigal son in verses 11 through 32, but did you know that the entire chapter of Luke chapter 15 is a series of three parables that the Lord gives back to back to back to tell us how God responds to lostness. The purpose of these parables is to show us what is God's response to lostness. All of these parables have one thing in common. Something very valuable to someone is lost. In one case, it's a lost sheep. In another case, it's a lost coin. And in in the final parable, it's the lost son. And I want you to think about that for a second. I want you to reflect on this question. Can you remember a time when something very valuable to you went missing? Can you remember a time when something very valuable to you went missing? Perhaps it was a a wedding ring. Or perhaps it was an heirloom that you got from your parents. Perhaps it was something else. How did you feel? And what was your response? I think I've told this story before, but several years ago, my family and I went on a family vacation to the most, the most uh, joyous place in the world, Walt Disney World. And we were there at Disney for about seven days, and we were going through all the different parks, and we were in Epcot Park one day in the World Showcase, and we had begun making our way around. We had three boys at the time. I believe John David at that time was about three years old. I can't remember exactly, but we had the oldest three, and, and, and they were all young. They were all under about eight years of age. And we were, like most parents at Disney World, tired, frantic, hot, and trying our best to find joy in the middle of this place. And we had been walking through Epcot that day, and our boys were excited. We were excited trying to get all the things in, and we had, we had walked back, back towards the front gates. We were going back through some of the different worlds in the World Showcase, and we had stopped for a moment in the United States of America uh, Showcase, and my, it was near Christmas time. My wife was was wanting to look at some Christmas ornaments and things that were there. And so she said, I'm going to go here and, and look for a second. And I said, well, I'm going to go to the restroom. And, and I began to walk towards the restroom. And as I did, I noticed behind me were my oldest two sons, Nathan and, and, and Drew. And they were following behind me. And so I figured they had to go to the restroom too. And I got to the, um, I got to the restroom and we were all there. And I believe it was... Nathan, the oldest one, said, Dad, where's John David? And I said, I don't know. I guess he's with your mom. So I called Allison and said, 
um, is John David with you? And she said, no, he went with you. And so somewhere between where we, where we departed and the bathroom in that mass of people, I took a right and my oldest two children took a right with me, but John David kept going straight. And all of a sudden we began to be very frantic because our youngest son was lost in Disney World. The good news is that we found him within a few minutes. Um, we were able to locate him. I just began to walk straight down into some of the other worlds, and John David made it from America all the way to Italy before we found him. Uh, but uh, we found him. And in that moment when we recognized that our son is lost, there were tremendous emotions that we began to feel at that point. We began to feel a sense of, of dread. We began to feel a sense of, of terror. Um, we began to, 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 to just feel numb. We didn't know what to do. Can you remember what it feels like to have something important to you that is lost? Because that's what's happening in this parable is in each and every one of these parables, something very valuable to someone is lost. And another commonality in each of these parables is that only one thing is lost. It's not a matter of several lost sheep or several lost coins, but it's one. And this is important for us to remember because it shows us that God doesn't just care about lost people in general in humanity. God cares specifically and tenderly about the salvation of each and every lost person. Let me say that again. When we talk about God's heart for the lost, we're not just talking about the fact that missiologists estimate that there's probably at least 2.5 billion people or so on our planet right now that currently have no access to the gospel and are lost, and, and many more of those who live in places like the United States of America with access to the gospel who've not yet received it. When, God, when we say that God cares about the lost, we're not just talking about God's general care over 2.5 to 3 billion people or more. We're talking about the fact that God cares specifically and tenderly about each and every lost person individually. And we need to be caring about what God cares about. So we're going to look at God's heart for the lost here in these two parables in Luke chapter 15, beginning in verse 1 and going through verses 1 through 10. Let's read it together. The Bible says, Now the tax collectors and the sinners were all drawing near to him, that's Jesus, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And so he told them a parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? <clears throat> and when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice for me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance." Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Real quickly, I want to tell you five things that really stand out to me 
about God's heart for the one that we see here in this passage. And the first of these is not a very positive point. It's actually a rather negative one, and it's what I call the scandal of gospel advancement. The scandal of gospel advancement. The key to understanding both these parables in Luke chapter 15, as well as God's heart for lost people, are found really in verses 1 through 2. Because these verses provide the context for why Jesus decides to tell these three parables about God's heart for the lost. Look at verse 1. It says, Now the tax collectors and the sinners were drawing near to Him. Think about that for a second. What's going on here? Very simply... People who were desperately sick in their sin and their depravity were being drawn to Jesus to hear more about what He had to say about God and His kingdom. Think about that for a second. People who were desperately sick in their sin, people who are just classified as sinners, were somehow or another uniquely drawn to the Lord Jesus Christ because they wanted to hear about what He had to say about God and about them. Luke gives us a general classification that they were sinners, but it was a motley crew probably composed of people from all sorts of sinful backgrounds. We know that, that in other places, he was, Jesus was criticized for hanging out with prostitutes. We know that he spent time around people who had committed adultery. We know that, he had, that this group probably included people who had defrauded people or scam artists or even tax collectors, as it says, that they weren't just hanging around sinners, but sinners and tax collectors who get their own classification. And what Luke is telling us here is something very important that oftentimes we miss when we begin to read these parables, and that is this. People who were broken by their sin weren't repelled by Jesus. People who were broken in their sin were not repelled by the Lord Jesus Christ. They didn't feel rejected when they came near to Jesus. People who were broken in their sin found in Jesus someone who knew their brokenness yet didn't condemn them for being broken sinners. He understood their plight and he understood that the pathway to their redemption was through him. There was something uniquely attractional about Jesus when it came to lost people. You remember the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4, when Jesus goes through Samaria and meets this woman at the well and he begins to dialogue with her. And she's a woman who had a sordid past because she'd already been at least with five men and was now with another man and Jesus reveals that to her. And yet in the midst of that, she didn't run away from Jesus. She was intrigued by him. Or think about the woman called in adultery in John chapter 8. Or Zacchaeus. Or the scandalous woman who who came to Jesus in the midst of all the religious leaders and began to anoint Jesus' feet with her tears and with oil. All of these people were broken people who were living lives immersed in sin, and yet they found in the Lord Jesus Christ something very appealing. Which then leads to verse 2, which is the grumbling of the self-righteous religious elite who were not pleased with the company that Jesus kept. They grumbled and they piously criticized the Lord Jesus by saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And what they meant to be an indictment on the character of the Lord Jesus Christ is actually a model for us as the church when it comes to engaging the lost. Here's a, here's a question I want you to think about for a second. 
It's not on the screen, but I want you to think about it. When was the last time self-righteous people criticized you for hanging out too much with lost people? When was the last time that self-righteous Pharisees said, you know what, I don't understand. Like, all the people you hang out with are sinners. They don't go to church. They're not right with God. I mean, you spend so much time with, with lost people. When was the last time that getting your hands dirty in the mire and the muck of broken humanity drew the condemnation of self-righteous people who said to you that you should be hanging out more with Christians than lost people? Church, I'm under this conviction. It's in your notes. It's on your screen. I'm under this conviction that we as the church need to hang out with sinners more. We as the church need to hang out with sinners more. And maybe it's time that the church began to be criticized for the same things our Savior was criticized for. Now by that, I don't mean that we need to go out and sin in order to be relevant to them. By that, I don't mean that we need to go out and compromise our convictions. But maybe the reason why we live in a country that is becoming more increasingly secularized and without Christ is because at some point in time, the church stopped hanging out with lost people and decided to hang out with each other more. Who's your one is a reminder to all of us that we need to get our hands dirty with lost people. And we need every one of us to intentionally engage with the tax collectors and the sinners in our community. In Uganda, where I work at Four Corners in Abana's Hope, our missionaries and our elders were studying this passage about Jesus being criticized for hanging out with the tax collectors and the sinners. And so one of our missionaries asked the elders of the church, because all of our elders are Acholi men, they asked our elders, who would be the tax collectors in this community? Who would be the people in this community who would be the most despised and the furthest away from God. And the, mission, the elders said the witch doctors. The witch doctors would be the tax collectors of our community. And so the missionaries and the elders said, well, why don't we get them together and start hanging out with them? And so they identified who the witch doctors were in the community and they invited them all to come to a restaurant to eat with them. And so our Four Corners missionaries and our elders from our church gathered together with about a dozen witch doctors from the the area surrounding Gulu, and they just began to share a meal with them. And they asked them questions about where they came from and what their family was like and, 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 and what they did for a living, you know, and things like that. And then they began to engage these witch doctors with the gospel. Because they said, you know what, we, we know that there's a lot of rumors about our ministry. People, people in the community call our ministry a cult, and they say that, that there's all kinds of suspicious things that happen there because there's life transformation that's happening. And we know that you've probably heard a lot of rumors, but let me tell you who we are. Let me tell you why we're here. Let me tell you about what, we, what we're trying to communicate to people. And they began to explain the gospel to the witch doctors in the community. And when they finished, one of the witch doctors asked our missionaries when it was over with, if what you say is true, why hasn't anybody ever told us about this before? Think about that. 
You know, there are tax collectors and sinners and witch doctors and people who are far from Christ all throughout the city of Decatur, all throughout Morgan County, all throughout Lawrence County. There are people who are far from Christ, and many of them haven't rejected Christ because they've never actually heard the gospel. What they've heard is that they need to straighten their act up, and they need to get right with God, and they need to go to church, and they've heard all these different messages about what they need to do, but they've never heard someone talk to them about what Christ has done for them. And church, let me be very clear. If we are ever going to get serious about the task of the gospel and evangelism in our community, then take a look around at the church right now because our church is going to start looking a little bit different than it does right now if we ever start taking this task seriously. Look around right now and tell me what you see. Look around the church. Don't just look at me. Y'all spend every time you're in here, you're looking at me all the time. Look around our church and tell me what you see. You see a lot of homogeneity here. You see a lot of a lot of middle class white people. Take a look around our community. Take a look around the streets that are within a mile of our community. The makeup of our community looks much different than what we see in this place right now. And the reality of it is, is that if we're ever going to get serious about personal evangelism, then things are going to look a little bit different in the church. And when it does, here's what happens. Whenever God begins to move in our hearts and we get serious about evangelism, people are going to get saved that don't look like us, that don't dress like us, that don't, that don't have everything all together. And when it does, sometimes what happens is the self-righteous Pharisees begin to get a little bit uncomfortable about that. This isn't our church. This isn't the church that, that I remember. If we ever get serious about the gospel, it will probably change the ethnic makeup of our church. And I pray that it does because we need to become a more socially and ethnically diverse congregation. But the Bible says clearly, whosoever will may come. And whosoever means whosoever. And the Bible says very clearly that the gospel is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, and I think it's time we started taking some heat for having the wrong people show up at Central Park Baptist Church. First, we see the scandal of gospel advancement, but secondly, we see the searching heart of our God. We see the searching heart of our God. We see this in verses 3 and 4 when Jesus says in this parable, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he's lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. Verse 8, What woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until he finds it? What is beautifully displayed in these two parables by the example of this shepherd and this woman is the searching heart of God for the lost. God is described as a shepherd who has the responsibility of watching over a hundred sheep, but one of them wanders off while the 99 are safe in the open field, and so he leaves the 99 to go after the one who needs to be saved. And the woman frantically turns over her house to find the one lost coin. Jesus says that God is a shepherd who goes after the one who is lost. Our God is a God who initiates salvation. Our God is a God who is seeking and saving the lost. Jesus said that's what his mission was. 
And during this campaign, we are asking each and every person to prayerfully consider and to search our hearts and examine our relationships and say, God, can you reveal one person to us who we can intentionally pursue with the gospel? Just one person. Could you give me a a burden for one person in my life who doesn't know you? It may be an old friend, it may be a parent or a child, it may be a neighbor or a co-worker. Whatever the case, everyone in here can readily identify at least one person who does not know Christ. And if you can't, then we need to go back to point number one because you need to start hanging out with lost people more. When I talk about who's your one without raising your hand, how many of you in here right now, you, you've got a pretty good idea of somebody in your, in your head right now that God is placed on your heart. Now here's what, if you do, and I think most of you probably can say, yeah, I know at least one person. When you think about your one, visualize them in your mind right now. When you think about that person, and you think about the fact that your one is spiritually lost and without Christ, how does that make you feel? How do you feel knowing right now while you're here in church, that your one is currently separated from God, living under the weight of sin and in the clutches of sin. How do you feel when you think about the fact that if your one isn't reached with the gospel, that quite likely they face an eternity apart from God in a place of eternal torment, rightfully enduring God's wrath for their sin? How does that make you feel? Surely, if we're honest, and we can picture that person, and we believe those things to be true, that that person without Christ is separated from God, rightfully condemned, and facing an eternity apart from Him. Surely, if that's true, those things grieve our hearts. And let me tell you, they grieve the heart of God infinitely more than they grieve your heart. It grieves the heart of God deeply, that any person created in His image and for whom He made a way of redemption through His Son to be saved, it grieves His heart that any one of those would die without receiving the gospel. It grieves the heart of God. But you know what I think grieves the heart of God just as much? I think it grieves the heart of God to see the apathy and inactivity of His already redeemed people in the church when it comes to sharing the gospel with the lost. I think that grieves the heart of God just as much. I put this in your notes. What moves the heart of God should move the heart of God's people. And you cannot read Luke chapter 15 without seeing clearly that what moves the heart of God is lostness. And people coming to find Him. We have a God who is a searching God who is searching for lost people and has provided everything they need to be saved. But He's given the task of searching them to us, the church. And what moves the heart of God should move the heart of God's people. One person being lost is simply not acceptable to God. And if it's not acceptable to God, it should not be acceptable to us who have been redeemed from sin and death by the power of the gospel. How much longer 
Can we be comfortable in our pews, going through the religious motions, trying to be recognized as good Christians, while there are people in our lives who have never actually heard the good news of the amazing grace of Jesus Christ? How much longer can we be satisfied with that? We see the searching heart of our God, but we also see the transforming grace of our Savior. I saw something this time in reading this parable in verse 5 that I've never recognized before. And I preached this passage multiple times and read it probably dozens of times. I want you to look at verse 5 and I want you to see what the shepherd does when he finds the lost sheep. Look at it again. It says, when he has found it, he, you see what it says there? He lays it on his shoulders. Why did Jesus add that to the story? Notice it doesn't say that the shepherd goads the sheep with his staff until it returns to the fold. It doesn't say when he found it, he lectures the sheep and says, what are you doing? And starts hitting the sheep with the staff and saying, get back into the, into the, into the fold. It doesn't say that the sheep, when the sheep saw the shepherd, made a conscious decision to return back to the shepherd. It says that he laid the sheep on his shoulders. I believe Jesus tells us this because he wants to show us the all-encompassing, life-transforming grace of Jesus Christ in salvation. You see, it's the mercy of the shepherd that understands that the sheep cannot return to the fold on his own. And it's the grace of the shepherd that decides to bear the weight of the sheep himself and bring him back where he needs to be. This is the life-transforming grace of the shepherd. It reminds me of a song that we sometimes sing called How Deep the Father's Love. And one of those verses says, Behold the man upon the cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed I hear my mocking voice cry out above the scoffers, It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. Church, we put it in your notes here. Christ has borne all that is necessary to bring the lost home. Christ has borne in His flesh all that is necessary to bring each and every lost one in this world home. And the Bible says He not only lays the sheep on His shoulder, but He does so rejoicing. It reminds me of Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, which says that as we run this race, we look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross. Did you hear that? Who for the joy before Him endured the terrible afflictions of the cross despising the shame and is currently seated at the right hand of God. This is the life-transforming grace of our Savior towards the one. And it's a reminder to us of this. It's not your job to save your one. You cannot bear the burden of their sin. But you can lead them to one who can and will bring them back home. And if you are here today and you are the lost sheep who has wandered from God, I want you to know that you have a loving, searching shepherd who has sought you and will bring you home by the power of His grace. You don't need to get your act together before you can come home. You just have to trust in the goodness of the shepherd. Not only do we see the life-transforming grace of the Savior, but we see the jubilant celebration 
over salvation in verses 6 and 9. We see a jubilant celebration. Verse 6 says, When he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. In verse 9, the woman finds the coin, and when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors and says, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that was lost. You see a very common statement in both of those, that, that, that what was lost is found, and it's a cause for joy and celebration. It's important for us to remember not only the searching heart of our God, but the universal celebration that occurs in heaven over repentance and spiritual life change. Now, again, let me be honest. When, when, when you, if you seriously read this story, when you first read this story, the response of the shepherd and the response of the woman it, at first comes across a little bit like overkill. Think about that for a second. You've got a shepherd, and I would think that if you were a shepherd in the first century and you had a flock of hundreds of sheep, that one of them getting lost would probably be a pretty common thing in that world. The shepherds probably had to deal with this on a daily basis. Sheep wandering off into the cracks and crevices because they don't know any better, and the shepherd doing an inventory and constantly having to go and find that and and if you were a shepherd and you had a hundred sheep and you brought one of them back, would you really feel like you had to go call all your friends and neighbors and say, we're going to have a party because my sheep, my sheep ran off again today and I got them back? Seems like a little bit of overkill. The problem with us is when we read this story, we have a tendency to devalue the importance of that which is lost. You see, we don't seem to think that one out of a hundred is very valuable. you got 99 others. I mean, that seems pretty good. You lost one. Well, that's depreciation. No big deal. We don't understand the value of one coin until you understand that that coin represented one-tenth of that lady's financial worth. So what would happen tomorrow if you lost a tenth of your financial worth just like that? Would you feel desperation? You bet you would. And here's the point. It's the value. It's not about the value in our eyes. It's about the value to the owner. And in the owner's eyes, the sheep and the coin have tremendous value. And that's the reason why when they find them, there is rejoicing. Jesus Christ is the sovereign king of the universe. And every person on this planet belongs to him. And Jesus Christ deserves the worship and adoration of each and every one of the 7 billion people currently on this planet. And it breaks his heart to know that one of them is lost, much less billions and billions of them. You contrast the, the response of the shepherd and the woman with the, with the example of the Pharisees because when the Pharisees saw sinners coming to Jesus because they found in Him real eternal life, the Pharisees responded with indifference and disdain and arrogance. The Pharisees didn't celebrate the fact that people who had lived their life far from God were now repenting of their sin and following Jesus. The Pharisees had actually become so audacious that they began to think that these people didn't even deserve forgiveness. But Jesus tells us this, that when the lost get saved, heaven throws a party. When the lost get saved... Heaven throws a party. And I think it's time that we started being responsible for some parties in heaven. 
The church needs more celebration over gospel transformation. We need to be in the business of seeing people come to Jesus Christ because God has given us the only message that is the power of God into salvation for everyone who believes. And years ago, I had a pastor who said this. I think it's in your notes. What gets celebrated gets repeated. What gets celebrated gets repeated. And so it's time for us to begin to celebrate life transformation, and that begins when we take the gospel to our communities, to each person, one person at a time, one gospel conversation at a time. I believe that the one thing that ought to be the biggest cause of celebration in the church is every single time we see somebody get saved and and get baptized. It ought to be the biggest party we have every single time. Which brings us to the last and final point, which is the priority of the one. Verses 7 and 10 remind us of God's priority over the one. Jesus said, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who needs no repentance. Verse 10, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. It is very clear in this passage that God places a priority over the one. He doesn't say there is joy and celebration in heaven when sinners get saved. He doesn't say God and the angels celebrate when dozens of people walk the aisle. He places a priority of the one over the multitude. And what happens in our personal gospel conversations with one lost person is more significant than what happens when hundreds of believers gather together in Christian fellowship. In a few weeks, we're going to celebrate our church-wide Thanksgiving meal. It's a great time for us as a church. It's a, it's a, it's a needed time for us as a church to, to gather together around a, a meal and to, to be the family of God. And it's a very, very powerful thing. But what happens when you have one gospel conversation with one person this week is far more important in the economy of the kingdom of heaven than 300 people gathering together in a gym eating a meal together. It's time that we started taking Note of the priority of the one. I put this in your notes here. We rarely reflect the heart of Jesus more than when we share the gospel with the lost. We rarely reflect the heart of Jesus Christ more than when we commit to sharing the gospel with the lost. Jesus cares about every one. Jesus cared about you when you were a one who needed the gospel, and Jesus cares about your one. So church, let's care about what Jesus cares about, and let's commit to sharing the gospel with the one. I didn't mean for these things to be in the bottom of your notes, but I gave this last week, so if you weren't here, here's our strategy over the next several weeks. I'm going to give them to you real quick. Here's what we want you to do in this Who's Your One campaign. Number one, we want you to pray intentionally and strategically for your one. We gave you a prayer bookmark like this, and what we want you to do, and maybe this week you've had an opportunity to pray, and God's revealed to you who your one is. Maybe today you're just getting this for the first time and you haven't had time to do that, so you can take this with you. But if you know who your one is, if God's revealed to you one person, we want you to write that name on this card. We want you to tear this card up. We want you to put it in the offering plate in just a few minutes when the offering comes by. We're going to take these cards and we're going to display them. Just put their first name. You don't have to put their last name, especially if there's somebody that's already in the church. We don't need to do that, okay? Um, just put their name on there, their first name. This is the person that God has called me to reach with the gospel, and we want you to give that to us so that we can keep a record of that and show that one gospel conversation at a time. Then we want you to commit to praying for that person regularly, strategically, and intentionally. We want you to begin to pray for them maybe every day or at least once a week. 
Begin to pray for that person's salvation. Begin to pray for an opportunity to have a gospel conversation with them. Number two, we want you to personally invest in your one. We want you to to look for ways to personally invest in them. Maybe it means inviting them over to have a meal at your house or, or saying, hey, look, let's go to lunch one day. I just want to get to talk to you a little bit more and catch up and see how things are going. I want you to find ways to invest in your one. Maybe it's a neighbor across the street you don't know very well, so you're going you're gonna to say, you know, we don't know you real well. Why don't you come over to the house and let's have, let's have dinner and play some cards and get to know each other. Personally invest in your one. Number three, you need to speak the gospel into the stuff of everyday life because as you begin to engage in gospel conversations with your one, you're going to find out that people without Christ begin to have issues in their life. And as they have issues in their life, they don't know how to deal with that because they don't have the gospel and they don't have Christ. They don't know how to make sense of that. And so as they begin to bring those things up, you begin to speak the gospel into that. You begin to say, you know what, I understand what that feels like. And and sometimes I have those same concerns and and here's, here's how I deal with that. I deal with that because I have the Lord Jesus Christ in my life and Christ has revealed this to me. Christ has shown me that I don't have to worry about trying to measure up to Him because He's already paid the price for me. You just begin to speak the gospel into the stuff of everyday life. You don't, you don't go and start telling them about cleaning their act up and getting right with God. And If you, get, if you just get in church, all that take care of themselves. No, that's not speaking the gospel. That's speaking religious legalism. You just begin to speak the gospel into the stuff of everyday life. And number four, trust the Spirit to lead you. Trust the Spirit to lead you in those conversations. Don't feel like you've got to get the whole gospel conversation out at one time. Trust the Spirit to lead you. And then number five, never, never, never give up. Never give up on your one. You see, at one time you were a one. At one time, you were probably somebody's one. At one time, there was probably somebody who was looking at you and saying, you know what, that's my child, that's my grandchild, that's my neighbor. And they need the gospel, and they began to pray for you. And maybe they didn't get to have a gospel conversation, but you were a spiritual target in their eyes, and you came to know Jesus Christ. At one time, you were one, and God has put one in your life as well. And so would you begin to pray about that and begin to see what the Holy Spirit does in your life? Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Time is late and we need to wrap up here this morning. But before we do, we want to give an opportunity for someone to respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ today. Because perhaps today as we've been talking about lost sheep and lost coins and God's heart for the one that was lost, perhaps today God's begun to reveal to you that you are the lost sheep, that you are the one who has wandered far from God, that that you are the person who is in need of the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ. That right now you stand under the weight of your sin and, and as you try to sing songs to God, it feels like you're just singing to an empty wall. And it's because you've never truly been found by the Savior. But today the Holy Spirit's speaking to you and He's saying, you know what, you need to give your heart and life to me today. You need to come home. I'm going to take you upon my shoulders because I've already borne all the weight for you and I'm going to bring you home, but you've got to take the first step towards me. And so maybe today you need to come and give your heart and life to Jesus Christ. Just a moment, we're going to sing a song of invitation and response. And as we do, if you need to give your heart and life to Christ today, I'm going to ask you just to go ahead and step out, come down here. You don't have to know what to say. We have people who will talk to you about the gospel and they will lead you to the Savior. Maybe you're new here today and God just began to burden your heart for people in your life that need to be saved, and maybe you just need to pray today for them. Maybe you need to pray where you are or pray up here at the altar. It doesn't matter. Whatever God's called you to do, you be obedient to Him. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you for your heart for the one. Give us as your church that heart. Give us that heart to see the people in our lives who don't know Christ be saved. Help us as your church to be no longer indifferent to the plight of lostness in our world. And God, for anyone who needs to know you today, God, give them the courage and the boldness to respond. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand? Would you sing this song as a response today?